Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 4, Episode 16. Did I say that with drama? I come from a very dramatic household. Everyone in my household is a girl, including all of our pets. So there's more drama. I mean, I hope that doesn't sound like a stereotype, but it's just the truth. There's more drama, and I actually love the drama. So if I say episode 16 with the dramatic flair, that's why it is. And it's brought to you by Lifetree at payingridiculousattentiontojesus.com. My name is Rick. I'm author of the book released in 2018, Spiritual Grit, and of the book released a couple years before that, The Jesus-Centered Life, which will be linked on our podcast page at payingridiculousattentiontojesus.com. You can find it right there because Julia is going to put a link to it there along with everything else you hear about today. I'm also the uh, editor of the Jesus-Centered Bible, which I uh, just saw this week crossed uh, another threshold. The Bible, is the Jesus-Centered Bible that we created about four years ago, is now selling more copies of that Bible now than in the spring of when it was released, which is remarkable. It's I think it's simply because people have a, a Jesus hunger deep down inside, that um, there's a kind of a weariness in our culture of self-help schemes and pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and live the principles of the Bible and, and of Scripture. There, there's a hunger for relationship, and that's what the Jesus Center Bible does. It, it reorients your focus toward a deepening relationship with Jesus, no matter where you're reading in Scripture. So if you, uh, again, don't yet have a copy of the Jesus-Centered Bible, what are you waiting for? And it's obviously uh, a great gift also for someone important in your life. If, if you want to introduce someone to engaging Scripture or you want to help deepen their experience of their relationship with Jesus, the Jesus-Centered Bible has this sort of quality about it because of the extra features we've added to it that helps to do that. So today is our second episode in a new series we're calling Fully Human. So we know that Jesus is theologically fully God and fully human, but we essentially, we, we give more weight to the fully God part than the fully human part. And what I mean by that is it's simply easier for us to understand and make sense of the things Jesus says and does when we think of him as God. But we don't often pay close attention to the ways in which Jesus has redeemed and reclaimed what it means to be fully human. So this series will be focusing on how Jesus is fully human and what fully human really looks like for us. And it's interesting because uh, now we're headed into early May, and we can see the the next holiday over the crest of the hill. And what's interesting is that uh, of all of our holidays, there's only a couple of them that are really uh, celebrating or focusing on what you might call the wonder of human beings. So as we explore more deeply the ways Jesus reframed and recovered what it is to be fully human, we're using a lens uh, that he created for us to explore this, and the lens is, uh, here's how he would like us to love God and love others. He would like us to love with all of our heart, 
mind, soul, and strength. So what does it mean then to love and live our life with our whole mind? Uh, Dave Getz wrote a great book called Death by Suburb. I heard him speak at my church about a decade ago, and I was floored by by what he had to say. Now, Dave Getz is a, a sort of a cross between a cultural observer, a pastor, and, a, and an academic. And he wrote this book to sort of describe suburban life and how suburban life in America is forming us as people of God. Um, throughout history, the people of God have been formed by their surrounding culture, and in our culture, the, the values and practices and standards of suburbia sort of form uh, who we are as a, as a people. It doesn't mean that everyone lives in the suburbs, but the suburban uh, mentality, he, Dave Getz makes the case, has sort of infected our, the inner workings of our culture and is forming us into who we are. In Death by Suburb, what Dave Getz tries to do here is he describes a sort of a contra way of living, and he describes this way of life as living the thicker life. And what he means is that it's a, a life that is focused outward, um, and it's so, the source of a life that's focused outward is in its abandon and dependence on Jesus. So as you grow more intimate with Jesus, as, as your orbit comes tighter and tighter around him in your life, you end up naturally um, redirecting your focus from what um, our suburban culture forces us into, this sort of narcissistic a me lens that we live our life by, he's saying that as we get more intimate with Jesus, that focus naturally shifts more outward. So here's what he writes, this much thicker world is a world in which I am alive to God and alive to others, a world in which what I don't yet own defines me. It's a higher existence, a plane where I am not the sum total of my house size, my SUV, my vacations, and my kids' report cards and that which I still need to acquire. So he's saying that there is a this life, this thicker life, is a longing for, for things that don't add up in the scorecard of suburban living, that, that we are longing for a deeper meaning and a deeper, uh, a deeper impact by giving what we have to give, that this thicker life is focused outward, not in the narcissism of our culture. And it's not about hanging on to things, but giving away things because of the freedom we've experienced in our intimacy with Jesus. We're simply, when we have that kind of intimacy, we're less and less likely to fuel that narcissism, and we're more and more likely to offer our good treasure to others. So this means we're getting out from our inside our these safe and protected bubbles that we've created for ourselves. We're more willing to get dirty, if you want to put it that way, in the, in, the, in the complex and chaotic and profane world that we live in, we're, we're willing to get outside from our safe zones and risk uh, to get a little dirty. And I have a tiny little story that actually is a huge tipping point in my life. It's going to seem funny when I tell this story. I think I've told it one other time in some episodes, some season, but this, this story, uh, it's going to sound like almost like nothing. But it's amazing when I look back on this story, what a huge deal this was for me at the time and still continues to today. So this story is is connected to my own sort of addiction to maintaining my protected bubble and staying clean, not getting kind of messed up 
in the chaos and profanity of the world. So I have a long commute from my home in Denver. It's about, oh, it's a little over an hour. And I've been making this commute for almost 20 years. Um, And so on this long commute, I have, you know, one of the side benefits, one of the fruits of this is that I have a, a lot of time to listen, to take in things, to chew on things. And and uh, sometimes I listen to music, and sometimes I listen to NPR for the news, and sometimes I listen to uh, sports talk radio. You never know what's going to be on the menu, depending on where I'm at. And sometimes I'm just silent. Um, I just create space to listen to Jesus and to, and to hash out stuff with him. So all of these things happen on this long commute, and it, it's actually, in a way, a blessing to have this much time two or three days a week where uh, I have this long stretch where um, there's some possibilities here. And But back in the day when I first started making this commute, one thing that I really never did and and refused to do was I, I did not listen to talk radio. <laughs> and the reason I didn't listen to talk radio is uh, I was really upset by, bothered by, and actually unnerved by or threatened by the strong opinions of other people. So sometimes I would, as I'm skipping through the radio channels, I would land on a, a talk radio show, and I would listen for a minute or two, and then I'd quickly switch it because it, it just, I could feel myself getting more and more agitated by the, the strong opinions being expressed. And part of it was, uh, I think if I was really honest, I was afraid that the strength of the strong opinions would somehow tip the balance in my identity, in the story I was telling myself about about myself and about what I believe. I didn't really want um, someone to upset my apple cart, um, and I didn't like to hear um, ideas and beliefs and opinions that I felt very strongly opposed to. I don't know if, if any of you listening right now like to watch mixed martial arts, um, but I hate it. Um, to me, violence is not entertainment, and um, uh, so uh, I, I guess I'm a bit of a hypocrite because I do like watching the NFL, <laughs> and I played football myself into college. Uh, the kind of violence that's represented by MMA and other forms like that, or even uh, in hockey, the thing I hate the most about hockey is the thing some people love the most, which is the fights that break out in hockey. There's no other sport that allows just um, all-out fist fights in the middle of the game. And I, I just see no point to it, and it's, it's boring to me, and I'm not entertained by it. So it's my reaction to talk radio at the time was kind of like that. Um, I could watch maybe 30 seconds of it, but then it just made me really uncomfortable, agitated. It wasn't entertaining to me. It started to stress me out to listen to it, driving up um, to our headquarters, and I was flipping through the channels, and I and I heard uh, a talk radio show, and I, I just had this thought inside, maybe it would be good for me to listen to this more than, for, than 30 seconds. And in that moment, I felt like Jesus was p- poking at me. He'd probably been poking and prodding at me for a while. It, this was just the first time I actually paid attention to it. And the poking and prodding was really, Rick, um, I want you to get over um, some of the anxiety and stress that you feel about listening to uh, opinions and beliefs that are strongly opposed to your own. I want you to get more comfortable in this space because what you're doing is withdrawing out of fear 
from the marketplace of ideas and opinions. You're you're essentially saying there are places where I I can't go in you. Um, you're you're retreating into a bubble, and it's time to get out from underneath the bubble. It's time to give what you have to give in a broader broader strata of life. So I I said to myself, okay, this is going to be really challenging for me. And it changes my ride up from uh, listening to things that relax me to listening to things that I'm going to have to deal with uh, my inner life <laughs> um, as I listen to them. So I thought, here's here's what I'll do. I'm going to have to kind of acclimate myself to this. So the first day I said, I'll listen to five minutes of talk radio, and then I'll switch it. And the next day I said, I'll listen to 10, and I thought, I'll, I'll work my way up to a half an hour. And that's essentially what I did. Over the next weeks, few weeks, I worked myself up to listening to talk radio for a half an hour. For me, this was a big deal. Um, it was sort of like uh, getting over a great fear in your life. Uh, someone on our Pigs page, by the way, um, the Pigs page is a, a special invitation-only Facebook page for those of you listening to the podcast who want to be in community with each other. And the pigs refers to a, a chapter in my book, The Jesus Center Life, on living a pig's life, where a chicken <clears throat> might contribute an egg to breakfast, but a pig gives everything for breakfast. Uh, so somebody in this last week posted on the pigs page a profound story. I think it was Vanessa Meyer who, who posted this story that was very profound to me. She was talking about having read Spiritual Grit and attempting to lean into risk and fear more in her life and in her parenting, and she was taking her kids to a water park during spring break. Vanessa insisted that her daughter uh, go on the slide at least once, and she complained and was fearful all the way leading up to it, but Vanessa didn't budge. She said, you're, you're going to experience it. I'm going to be right here with you. Other people in line were reassuring her. Her daughter was sort of forced to go on this dangerous, risky slide, is that she absolutely loved it <laughs> and went back time and time again. She was... Uh, she was sort of forced into confronting her fear. Well, that's essentially, uh, Vanessa was making the point in her post, that that's essentially what Jesus does with us, too. He, he funnels us into our fears because he knows there's freedom on the other side of it, and this is what Jesus was doing in me. He was funneling toward me toward something that I had always avoided because I, I was afraid of it, so that I could experience freedom on the other side. And, it, and the freedom, the fruit of that freedom was not just for my life, but in the lives of all of those people that I would be able to impact with my life now that I wasn't so, so afraid to be around their strong opinions. So this was sort of a kind of a strange, pathetic therapy <laughs> in my life, and I got used to it. Um, and I, I got conditioned to, to feel more uh, at peace and at rest in the midst of very contrary opinions. Uh, the effect of this was to give me access into the marketplace of ideas to make my presence uh, matter uh, in the midst of uh, a world that is now defined by extreme opinions. What do we see in him when we kind of slow down and pay attention to him? Um, how did he enter into this chaotic and profane marketplace of ideas, and what can we learn from him about being fully human in that, in that place where ideas and beliefs and opinions have been sort of radicalized and weaponized. So the truth is we've never been in a more volatile idea or opinion space than today. So for instance, uh, raise your hand if you've had a close relationship that's been impacted 
um, negatively by the division of extreme ideas in our culture, right? In order to live and, and breathe in that environment, um, we have to be people who can um, hear and exist in these extreme, uh, in, the, in the world of these extreme opinions. So I have to say my wife and I have tried um, as, as hard, I think, as we can to maintain connection with those people who've now become more divided from us because of the divisive culture that we live in. It takes a lot of work, doesn't it? And it's kind of scary. Um, so what can we learn about Jesus as we explore how he entered into a similar culture, culture full of very, very strong beliefs and opinions and, um, and, and a kind of a dangerous environment for ideas and beliefs? Uh, so let's explore the thicker life of outward engagement in a culture of extreme belief and opinion through the Gospel of Luke. Of the four Gospels, he's the only non-Jew writing one of the Gospel accounts of the life of Jesus. He's a physician, he's an intellectual, um, and his you can see this show up in his Gospel because he, he gives details and nuances that the other three Gospel writers don't. And he also he, he includes uh, parables and stories and encounters that the other Gospels don't as well. He, he simply has this sort of detailed focus that you might expect from a physician and an academic, someone who's paying close attention to the details. He also has a greater focus on the humanity of Jesus, or the better way to say that maybe is the fully humanness of Jesus. He tends to uh, put his spotlight on that more than the other three gospel writers. So what we're going to do is we're going to dive into a sort of a sampler of encounters uh, that Luke has recorded, just a few, and these are really almost random. I mean, I just I just kind of plunked myself down in Luke 10 and for examples of how Jesus entered into the marketplace of opinion and belief with his full self, and what does that look like, and what can we learn from from getting closer to him in this and letting his approach to this infect us more. So let's start with uh, Luke chapter 10, 25 through 37. So if you're not driving right now and you want to flip open your Bible, hopefully it's a, you know, a Jesus-centered Bible. <laughs> it's the New Living Translation, which uh, I just love this translation, by the way. It's, it's very readable, but it's also not dumbed down uh, at the same time. It's, it, it accomplishes something that's really hard to do, so just love this translation, the New Living Translation. So this is, if you're not driving right now and you have the ability, f uh, flip open your Bible or your Bible app to Luke chapter 10, and we're going to be focusing on uh, a story contained in verses 25 through 37. It's uh, what happens when Jesus uh, engages a man who's described as an expert in religious law. So here, let's, let's go ahead and read this little portion. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replied, well, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told them. Do this, and you will live. So let's just stop there just for a second before we finish out the rest of this story. Um, here, here's what we know so far. This religious leader, 
he was trying to leverage Jesus. He was trying to funnel Jesus in a particular way. He was trying to expose Jesus in a particular way. So this is not a neutral encounter, and Jesus knows it. So um, right now, uh, the man has answered by the book, and Jesus' response was, that's right, that's by the book. And then he says, do this, and you will live. And so then the man goes, oh, I'm going to have to change course a little bit here in my strategy. So then he says, the man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus another question, and who is my neighbor? And then Jesus responds with a story. A Jewish man, a Jewish man, remember, the details are vitally important here in Jesus' story, because his story is a response to this man's testing of him. So again, not a neutral environment. Um, you could say it's a contentious environment. Jesus is well aware of it. Um, it would be easy, uh, in my earlier story about listening to talk radio, to sort of switch channels at this point. Oh, well, this guy is coming from a very different place. He wants to contest something about me. I'm switching channels. Jesus instead dives in, but he dives in in a very particular way. He tells a story. So and the story is a Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest, a Jewish leader, came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over, and temple assistant, again, a person of religious hierarchy, walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan, not just a Samaritan, uh, Samaritans were already by, by definition despised, but this one was even more despised. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. And then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn, where he took care of him. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, Take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, he turns back to the man, now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by the bandits, Jesus asked. Can you feel how Jesus uses a story to sort of funnel the man from this wide, broad place of who is my neighbor down to a pinpoint? And so the man replies, well... The person who was a neighbor to the man who was attacked, a Jewish man who was attacked, the person who was a neighbor to him was the one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. So this is a fascinating <laughs> uh, little monster of a story Jesus tells in the midst of this uh, intense encounter. So first of all, what is at the core of this man's question, his testing of Jesus? Well, he, he wants to know what boxes he can check off to feel good about who he is. Basically, he, he wants to undergird and reassure his acceptable status in the community, right? He wants Jesus to sort of give his stamp of approval for his belief system and the way he's living his life. And so he's a very smart man, and he thinks, I got this this rabbi from Nazareth, I mean... I, I'm going to be able to to upend this guy pretty easily. So uh, he ventures down this path, um, 
trying to at first say, well, how do I inherit eternal life? He gives the uh, by the book answer, and Jesus challenges that by saying, now go live that. Don't just talk about it. Don't just wrestle over it. Go live it. And then the man goes round two and says, well, actually, well, then who is my neighbor? Um, and Jesus then tells this story. First thing he does is, if you notice, he asks questions first rather than making statements. So he recognizes that this is a volatile, uh, contentious um, interaction he's about to have. So instead of simply throwing out statement grenades, he first invites the guy to surface his own arguments from inside and the basis of those arguments. He says, where are you getting your belief system from? So instead of retreating from where he's coming from, Jesus actually invites it by asking questions rather than making statements. The second thing he does, I've already mentioned, he responds with a story, and that story, if you think about it, forces the man's beliefs to their extremes. Think about how brilliant this story is. It's a Jewish man that is lying wounded by the side of the road. It's someone that normally a religious leader should reach out to, and yet in the story, both religious leaders, they do nothing about it. Even though their belief system says that this is what a good Jew would do, is reach out to this person who's been beaten up uh, by bandits by the side of the road, they do nothing about it. They, they look at the man, they recognize the personal investment to care for this man is higher than I want to pay, so I'm going to pass him by. But the third person that comes by is someone despised in the culture, who doesn't even have the, the belief system of the Jews that would propel him to care for others. Nevertheless, he's the only one who stops, and he makes the personal investment to care for this man's wounds, not just by the side of the road, but paying the money and the time and the inconvenience to actually nurse this man back to health in a safe place. And in the story, Jesus obviously asks the man then which one acted as the neighbor of this man, and of course the man trying to engage him said, the one who showed him mercy. So Jesus narrows and narrows and narrows and narrows and narrows this man's um, worldview into its extremes. Um, he's, he's here basically pushing the envelope on this man's belief system. And in that, he's also inviting him to get outside of his bubble, this bubble where you think about ideas and beliefs in the safety of, of debate rather than in the risk and danger of living out those beliefs. He's emphasizing here action over the wrestling out of ideas. This is what's so profound also to those listening. Jesus is trying to uh, funnel this man who lives in safety away from risk toward what it really means to love and give. He's correctly targeted the standard that God has, but he is not living it. What Jesus does is upend all of that and remind the man that love means what you do more than what you argue about. And so he, he upends the man's whole worldview by not telling him what to believe, but again, to force the man to grapple himself with his own belief system rather than trying to change it from the outside in. He's inviting the man into an inside-out process where he has to really chew on what he believes and the consequences of that belief system. 
Let's go to another one in uh, Luke chapter 11. Uh, let's flip over in the Jesus Center Bible here. Uh, Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 28. And here, this is uh, Luke's, uh, Luke's recording of an encounter that Jesus has with a man who's possessed by a demon. Jesus casts the demon out of this man, and then some critics surrounding him when he does this accuse him of using the power of Satan to do this, which is an interesting thing. He's just released this man from this terrible oppression, and he has some critics in the crowd. Have you ever experienced uh, doing something great and good and suddenly finding that uh, there are critics that come out of the wallpaper? Have you ever posted something that is innocent and good and had people misinterpret it and slam you on social media? Well, that's where uh, that's what happens here with Jesus. So let me just read verses 14 through 28 in Luke 11. One day, Jesus cast out a demon from a man who couldn't speak. And when the demon was gone, the man began to speak. The crowds were amazed. But some of them said, no wonder he can cast out demons. He gets his power from Satan, the prince of demons. Others, trying to test Jesus, demanded that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his authority. Again, what you get here at the very lead into the story is this is not a neutral situation. There's strong beliefs um, embedded in this crowd. There's contention embedded in this crowd. And they're intending to test him because there's something that Jesus is doing or saying that is personally affronting to them. So um, the story continues that Jesus knew their thoughts. So he said, You say, I'm empowered by Satan, but if Satan is divided and fighting against himself, how can his kingdom survive? And if I'm empowered by Satan, what about your own exorcists? They cast out demons too, so they will condemn you for what you have said. But if I'm casting out demons by the power of God, then the kingdom of God has arrived among you. For when a strong man is fully armed and guards his palace, his possessions are safe, until someone even stronger attacks and overpowers him, strips him of his weapons, and carries off his belongings. Anyone who isn't with me opposes me, and anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. When an evil spirit leaves a person, it goes into the desert searching for rest. But when it finds none, it says, I'll return to the person I came from. So it returns and finds that its former home is all swept and in order. And then the spirit finds seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they all enter the person and live, live there. And so that person is worse off than before. As he was speaking, a woman in the crowd called out, God bless your mother, the womb from which you came and the breasts that nursed you. Jesus replied, but even more blessed are all those who hear the Word of God and put it into practice. So, again, what's happening here? What is the core of the complaint against Jesus? Well, um, the core of the complaint um, is, is coming from a place that wants to undermine and destroy the source of Jesus' power and authority. Uh, they essentially want to cut him down to size, to conform, to be safe, to, to fit in. Do what we expect, and do what you're told. That's, that's some of the, the, the motivation you feel in this encounter. And so what does Jesus do to engage these critics? Again, this is what it feels like to enter into the marketplace of ideas and opinions and beliefs with your full mind. To love Jesus with all your mind means to enter into these kind of contentious um, public spheres without fear. And, of course, we can't do that without fear unless we are deeply attached and connected to the source of our peace, who is Jesus. 
We can only not fear when we do this, when we don't have really anything on the line, that we enter in uh, with the mindset that we're beloved children and uh, treasured members of the kingdom of God. Our identity is not at stake when we enter into these arenas. So what does Jesus do to engage these people? Well, first of all, I think, I think this is fascinating. He takes their argument at face value. You're saying that I'm exercising power using the power of Satan, so I'm actually casting out Satan by the power of Satan. He, he kind of takes their, their argument to its logical extreme. So if I'm doing that, then that means I'm fighting against myself, and how common is it for a kingdom that fights against itself to survive? He's basically destroying, in a very quick fashion, the underlying logic behind their belief. So, But at first, he takes it at face value. He's, he's essentially not, uh, at his first blush, trying to destroy the argument. He's trying to consider the merits of the argument. He starts poking at it to see if it will hold water, and it turns out it doesn't. So he turns their argument, again, back into a personal challenge. He, he's essentially saying here, um, when, when, he, when he talks about um, what he's just done in this man— excising this uh, demonic presence in this man, um, he turns their argument against that back into a personal challenge. Would you treat those that you respect this way? Would you really treat someone that you respect in your own life this way, the way you're treating me right now? He challenges them to count the cost of their attempts to tear him down. He's, He's saying, if I have done this, if I have cast this spirit out of this man, and you're working to oppose that, then whose side are you really on? (laughs) Um, What's the cost of that in the life of this man? You're attempting to tear me down for setting this man free. What would you like for that man to experience instead? He's basically putting their face close to the, the cost of what they're attempting to do. And then he invites them to work with him, not against him. Um, I find this fascinating that he's he's really saying the the cost of what you're doing is damaging to this man and to me and ultimately to yourself as well. Why don't you work with me instead of against me? And then at the very end, he again, he urges practice, not the spectator sport of ideas, to do what he just did, which is to set a man free. All right, we could keep going on and on with these encounters that Jesus had, um, where he was entering the public sphere with all of his mind, and loving people with all of his mind. There's one, by the way, if you want to check this one out, the very last half of Luke chapter 11, here's a, here's a totally different way that he engages. He's invited to this uh, to eat a meal at a Pharisee's home. He's a guest at an honored meal, and uh, he doesn't first wash his hands in the ceremonial way that you're supposed to, and so the, the host and others there are like shocked and amazed that he hasn't done the expected thing, and of course Jesus didn't do the expected thing on purpose. And then when they question it, Jesus launches into uh, a very pointed exposition on their hypocrisy, the way that they pay attention to the outside of the cup and not the inside of the cup, and he just won't let up. And finally, uh, one of the the people gathered there, um, one of his hosts says, Teacher, uh, you've insulted us too in what you just said. So he's basically saying, uh, maybe you didn't realize this, Jesus, but you just uh, poked your finger in her eye. And Jesus basically says, yeah, I'm, I'm aware of that, and keeps going. And so so the, the idea behind this is just, it, it, it's 
it's just so Jesus to sort of surface the toxicity that he sees in these hypocritical religious leaders, because he knows this toxicity is going to kill them. He sees it like a physician sees cancer. And so even though what he's doing hurts, just like cancer treatment hurts, he is trying to surface that cancer so it can get out in the light and he can treat it. So he does not hang back and just acquiesce to the environment that he's in when he sees that there's a, there are people there who are going to die because of the cancer of hypocrisy that they are living their lives by. He won't stand by and watch that happen. And so he p- puts himself at personal risk to surface that stuff. So that's in Luke chapter 11, verses 37 through 54. It's a good one to dive into and think through the lens of how is Jesus engaging these people with his mind, his full the, the full force of his love expressed through his mind. So to live as the body of Christ, we have got to enter into the chaos of the world. And we're going to have to count the cost of that because there is a cost to it. So kind of to wrap up here, to give a few closing thoughts here to think about how, how then do we enter into that world as we count the cost. Uh, the first thing is we enter independently. We are desperately asking the Spirit of Jesus, or as I call him in, the, in, the, in my book, Spiritual Grit, the rabbi inside, we're desperately asking the Spirit of Jesus for help in the moment. We're not assuming that we enter into these moments self-confident and self-assured. We're completely dependent on him, and we're begging him for insight and strategy as we enter into the public sphere, loving people with our whole mind. The goal here is not to win, but to engage. So we often lose sight of this when we enter into these kinds of circumstances. We, we think, out of, because of our insecurity, that our goal must be to win, because if we don't win, our insecurity is going to be exposed. But really, Jesus modeled for us that the goal is to engage, not to win. How can I best engage the, uh, these people to surface what is going on inside of them and inspect it in the light? The goal is also not to make winning statements, but to ask engaging questions. Let me say that again. The goal isn't to make winning statements, uh, statements that are designed to uh, claim victory in the conversation, but to ask engaging questions to draw out and invite the people that we're with. The goal is also not to ultimately uh, to exclude people, but to invite them. We're not trying to push people away. We're trying to invite people in. And lastly, the goal is to live our beliefs, not to argue our beliefs. That is so important. Jesus couldn't be more clear here um, that if you have beliefs, live them. Uh, just talking about them and arguing about them is of no value. The only value to them is if you live them out in your real life with real people. So the goal is to live our beliefs, not to argue our beliefs. All right, there you go, gang. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can find out more information, but in further detail on PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. Just looking for our podcast section, and this is Season 4, Episode 16. Remember also to check out those links to those special gifts if you have that special mom in your life. Um, check out our, our links to those uh, and give the mom that you love, the the gift of Jesus <laughs> this this Mother's Day. So again, you, you can check out the links on our pain ridiculous attention to Jesus.com or you could go to lifetree.com or group.com. That it's all it's it's the same stuff in all three places. So this again is Pain Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. Subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play and we'll talk again next time.